Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by fellow podcaster Eric Malinsky, the man behind the Great Imaginary Worlds podcast. Hello, Eric. Hello. Thank you so much for talking to us today. You've got such a nice home studio set up there in New York as well. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it's my little office here. For listeners who maybe haven't listened to Imaginary Worlds, how do you how do you describe the show? Well, first of all, it's a podcast about science fiction and fantasy. I always say it's really a sh- it's a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. But the way I always put it is that you know, Imaginary Worlds is not really in the end about the worlds. It's about the people that create them. It's about the it, it's about us. You know, I mean, because I always say these. You know, these these fantasy sci-fi worlds are not, um, they don't come from other worlds. <laughs> they don't come from other planets. Like, we make them up here. So they're always about us. They're always kind of metaphors, you know. Or one thing I think about is when I was in college, I, there was this amazing teacher there named Richard Slotkin, who was one of the first people to really see how Westerns were metaphors for so much that was going on in society or even um, politics or foreign policy. But through the metaphor of the Western, you can trace the entire history of the Cold War pretty much through the the Western, using it as a metaphor. Um, The entire history of the Vietnam War, you can almost see its progression through the, the Western. And he was someone who always believed that the elements of the Western just migrated to superheroes, to space, to, you know, detective genres as well. And so, I've always been fascinated by what's the story really about, you know, kind of thing. And so my other way of of putting it, I used to work at New York Public Radio for a long time, which is part of the whole system that's um, in the U.S. NPR. But I used to also sometimes the shorthand here is I'll say to people, imagine if NPR went to Comic-Con and decided that's all they ever wanted to cover. And so and I love also going a wide variety of genres. I mean, I cover literature, video games, movies, TV, cosplay, um, LARPing. I got into LARPing, which I'd never done before. Role playing games. It's been it's been actually a huge education for me as well to explore every nook and cranny of this of, of actually quite a vast world of sci fi fantasy. Any way in which fantasy is expressed, you know, is kind of how I I go exploring. I, you know, I listen to lots of film podcasts and comic book podcasts, but it's all very much like publicity driven around what the new big thing is. And what I love about Imaginary Worlds is you take a step back from that and actually, you know, like what could be an interesting half an hour of radio or, or you know, podcasting, you know, what would be an interesting angle on it? And, and yeah, like the research that goes into every episode and the thought behind it, you know, it's uh, it just feels like you're spoiling us, to be honest, Eric. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It's funny too because I have so many evergreen topics. When I also, I, I uh, when I worked in public radio and you always pitch something, I'm like, oh, I'm really interested in this. I always say, well, what's the news hook? And that always drove me crazy. And I thought, oh, when I have my own podcast, I won't have to worry about that. And yet, I find myself asking the same question. But I think what it really is is why should people care now about this? And so I'll have something uh, like on my bucket list forever of something that I'm like, well, I've always wanted to cover this, but but why am I doing it now? And so it does help sometimes when there's a little something that makes me realize, oh, this is relevant now because of this, you know, and sometimes it takes me a while to figure out what that is. And then it's fun. Then I can do my deep dive into something that's really an evergreen topic. But, you know, at least I can explain why 
you should care about this now. I think you do a good, you know, good job of balancing, uh, you know, like bringing maybe like total strangers to somebody's work uh, on board, uh, but you do it in, you know, like in, in a really succinct way. And then you can really go into that deep dive subject or the angle. When it was live action role playing, for example, like no idea what this scene is, but I got really caught up in those episodes and I, I loved it. You know, th- those were some of my, my favorite episodes you put out that year. That was, I think those are my favorite episodes too. The second episode I did on LARPing, where I did a lot, a lot of LARPing, I think is probably my favorite episode of all time that I've done because I got so into it and um I you know I, I it's easy to record everything here and record everything remotely but it's a joy when I get to go out in the world and uh, you know talk about having real world experiences your shows are made up of you know you doing the narration over the top and and, and doing the re- research but you you have so many you know interesting guests on in multi you know multiple guests per episode like there's a lot of production that goes behind uh you know your fortnightly show <laughs> it is it is the amount of time i spend on this is pretty ridiculous <laughs> um, it is truly a labor of love but at least you know it is it is you know, it's it's the th- I, I've done a lot of. We'll talk about it as well. I've my career has gone in very strange directions. Um, but this is the the thing I've truly found that is my real passion, and so I'm you know sticking with it and finding any way to make it work. You're very much in the audio scene now, but this wasn't your first industry. Uh, how did how did you go into podcasting? I had the weirdest weirdest career path. I started out in animation, and uh, I was a film major in college, and I just thought, well, I love to draw. Uh, and I'm a film major, so I guess I'll go into animation. And then about uh, 10 years later, I just suddenly realized I was kind of in the wrong field, that I love to draw, but I actually don't want to sit in a cubicle and draw all day. I was living vicariously through public radio. I was listening to it all the time. Um, and I was really kind of bored. And I and I discovered that the people, I was working actually at that time on the Rugrats. Um, I was a storyboard artist and uh, working on a bunch of other shows that were on Nickelodeon at the time. This is late 90s, early 2000s. I, I started noticing that the people that were really getting ahead weren't always necessarily the best artists, but the people, I mean, everyone at that level was already pretty good anyway. But it was the people who truly, truly loved what they were doing and would, would um, you know, it didn't matter what they were assigned, how good the script was, how good the show was. They just wanted to sit in a cubicle and draw. And I just realized that's not me. And so uh, our, the, the, the company actually was uh, downsizing greatly and I offered to leave. My brother was the one who actually said, like, why don't you just go into public radio? I mean, that's all you listen to. That's all you talk about. You have way more passion for those shows than you do for animation, frankly. The moment that kind of broke me was um, I was trying to get work after I was on the Rugrats and uh, I did a test for SpongeBob. And the guy, I think it was Steve Hillenberg, uh, um, who was the guy that created SpongeBob. He was it was a small group, small crew. And a friend of mine worked on the crew and got my test to him. Um, And he said, apparently to my friend, he, he said, he said, this looks like SpongeBob. It doesn't feel like SpongeBob. This guy doesn't love cartoons. And I was like, he's right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love some cartoons. I, I, I have great passion for some things. You know, I love the classic Disney films. You know, I love certain things, but I don't love everything. I'm pretty picky, you know. Yeah, that was the moment that I was like, what am I doing in this field? Pretty interesting. Like, I mean, I uh, when I when I learned that you had worked on Rugrats, I was so starstruck because I, <laughs> you know, I watched that show. I watched so much of that show. Yeah. But um, but it's it's yeah, having that moment of realization that must be, you know, like, I, a lot of people don't get that. You know, they might be doing a job they don't like for their whole careers. I think it's, it's really good that you were able to sort of take a step back and change lanes, as it were. Uh, what's it like knocking on the door of, uh, you know, public radio and broadcasters when you've got 
got solely an animation background. How did you get in? I started as an intern. I basically went to this one show, Studio 360, and I said, I love your show. You're my favorite show. And they they had probably one of the most generous intern programs out there. I didn't even know this at the time, but looking back, um, they would churn through interns that have like 12 a year or something. And so um, they were like, yeah, an overqualified intern, sure. Uh, they, yeah, it was funny. I remember when they, they let me do my first piece for them. They were extremely skeptical, like, oh, the animation guy is going to try a piece out. It took, it took forever for me to convince them to listen to the thing that they had let me do. And I'm like, you are going to put this on the radio, right? And then when they heard it, they were like, this is actually good. <laughs> They're like, oh, my God, this is actually good. Like, how did you do this? I'm like, I, I'm telling you, it's, you know, it, it, weirdly enough, everything I learned at CalArts, I feel like actually, even though it was about animation, it actually applies. Weirdly enough, I feel like everything, it applies almost better here than it did to the job I had in the animation industry. Um, you know, in terms of just, just the way that your, you know, your brain works in terms of, I mean, I feel like CalArts almost trains you to be a director, you know, and then like you come out and you're not a director, you know, maybe you get there someday, but you've got to have a lot of other things going on to get there. And, uh, it was just a good fit. And then, and then just by coincidence, right around the time I left or my internship ended, somebody, um, uh, somebody went off to get another job and they were shuffling the deck and they were like, quick, we need somebody in here to, to fill in at the bottom, like assistant, assistant producer level. Could you fill in for a little while? And that little while turned out to be like a year. And it was an incredible training. You know, there, it was incredibly nice looking back at all the mistakes I made early on as a total newbie, um, that they had so much faith in me. That was incredible. That, I feel like I learned the ropes big time by uh by being there um for that in yeah from that on i yeah i didn't really look back and then and then i guess you were you know obviously looking at new mediums because imaginary worlds has been going for a little while it was uh you know it's before the podcasting boom <laughs> yeah well it started it's funny i launched um i i joined wnyc in 2004 and then I launched Imagine Worlds in 2014. So at that point it had been 10 years. I've been working, you know, in traditional public radio. And uh, it's September of 2014, which I remember because Serial launched the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's when podcasts were invented. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just modeling myself after 99% Invisible, you know, which was at that point like the only major podcast anyone really knew about. But yeah, that's when the world changed of podcasting. Normally, when when we're doing one of these shows, like I might reach out to someone, or they might reach out to us, but we'll sort of go back and forth on films. People might have a short list and umming and ahhing, like, oh, which one do I want to do? Uh, but what I really loved uh, when when we started talking, Eric, was you had a film in mind right away, mm -hmm. um, which is it's. I think it might be a first for our podcast in our sixty plus episodes. Oh my god! <laughs> really? Which was as a you know someone behind the scenes you know loved it brilliant i wish everybody was as organized as you <laughs> but uh but why did this film come to mind just before we get into talking about the movie itself well i know that you've done a lot of animation and so i you know that's what i know best and certainly in terms of 90 minutes or less and so i thought i just thought to myself was there any animated film that i i feel any particular i mean i love you know a lot of them but there's anyone i feel a particular affinity to and it was like duh iron giant without a, without a question the reason why is because i was at cal arts from 96 to 99 and which completely overlap with the production of the Iron Giant. So the way that CalArts worked was that uh, we had day faculty, which were full-time faculty that would teach drawing and design and stuff like that. And the night faculty were working professionals at the studios. They would drive up from Burbank, you know. But anyway, all three of our animation teachers worked on Iron Giants. We had several of our students in our program actually in their summers worked on Iron Giant. And so I watched the entire production of that film happen from behind the scenes. 
And we it, it just completely overlaps with my CalArts experience. And so I just feel such a strong affinity towards that film um, and, and the profound crushing disappointment of <laughs> what happened in the end. Winner of nine Annie Awards, remastered and enhanced with two all-new scenes conceived from the film's original release. The Iron Giant is the tale of an unlikely friendship between an alien robot from outer space, voiced by Vin Diesel, and a rebellious boy named Hogarth, voiced by Eli Mertenthal, a bedraggled mom, voiced by Jennifer Aniston, a paranoid government agent, voiced by Christopher McDonald, and a sympathetic beatnik, voiced by Harry Connick Jr., all conspire to turn Brad Bird's The Iron Giant into a gigantic, out-of-this-world feature. The Iron Giant, released in 1999, as you said, produced by Warner Brothers feature animation, directed by Brad Bird, a directorial debut, and based on the 1968 Ted Hughes novel, uh, The Iron Man, or The Iron Giant, as I think it was called in the United States when it was published there. Probably for Marvel copyright reasons. <laughs> loosely, yeah, exactly. And loosely connected to uh, Pete Townsend did a concept album, which I owned in high school, based on The Iron, the Iron Giant or The Iron Man. Yeah. And so I think he's, I think he had the rights. That's why he's one of the executive producers of the film. I did wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a great, it was a great concept album. He did some good stuff after The Who, actually. Um, but I, yeah, I was one of the few people I think actually bought that album, that cassette tape in the 80s. Uh, alas, this is not an adaptation of the uh, concept album. <laughs> no, but I think they thought about it. From what I've read, I went on IMDb and looked at the trivia and I guess um, they played with the idea at first as to whether this could be, you know, maybe, but they decided not to. Brad Bird's featured debut there. Um, original cut was 87 minutes long. The new cut, which is on the the sort of readily available now, is 89 minutes. So both cuts qualify for our festival. Yes, uh, which is which is always good. Um, so I guess you you must have watched this at the cinema if you were you were you know so close to production at the time. Yeah. So I actually our teachers would consistently show us pencil tests that they were working on, like scenes of the Iron Giant. You know, pencil test is as you could imagine what that looks like. It's you know the non-colored version, the rough animation. And so they would show us their pencil tests all the time, but just to show us, like, to teach us the principles of animation. You know, they'd say, like, well, you know, in fact, I'm working on the scene of Iron Giant. Let me show it to you. And, you know, I just brought, I just worked on this today and then pop in a videotape, you know. I had seen all these things out of order. And then there was a screening at Warner Brothers in probably 98, maybe. That was a rough version of the whole film. Uh, and it was that they invited the students to go see. And it was like, again, it was a combination of storyboards, animatics, pencil tests, probably some finish, finished animation. And if I remember correctly, I think Brad Bird's son originally did the voice of Hogarth um, in the rough version when they were putting it together because they changed things so much. I think that they wanted to bring in, I think they used a lot of temp voices early on and temp music, of course, you know, as they were like putting it together. So I had seen a really rough version of it. You know, the crew's there and everyone's really excited. And then afterwards, you know, Brad Bird huddles with all the, the team and the, you know, how did that play? How did that work? And so I remember when I finally saw in the theaters, I remember I knew the whole story. I knew everything really, really well. Um, so I feel like emotionally I had felt the whole thing, you know, with that rough, that rough version that I had seen. But it was more the crushing disappointment of um, the the fact that it was so horribly marketed, so horribly marketed. We, you know, we'd been we'd like for three years we've been hearing about how amazing this movie was and seeing it, and then you know that the 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 marketing was just like it was so awful. It was like they were aiming it at five year olds, and it was so not what this movie was. 
And and they really just tried to bury it. I was surprised to sort of hear about how they just kind of dumped it. I, I, I sort of read they spent a lot of their marketing budget that year on Wild Wild West and Iron Giant was just sort of like an also ran. So I can kind of set the scene here because I was, you know, having having been there, um, I got to L.A., started getting an animation, 94, 95. It was right after, you know, Disney had this amazing run of hits, you know, that we all know. Little Mermaid, Beating the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King, which made a gazillion dollars. And so at that moment, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg had defected to create DreamWorks animation. And they were going to do um, Prince of Egypt was going to be. They thought they were going to like win Oscars with that. And then Warner Brothers, which had already had so much success with TV, with Batman, the animated series and Animaniacs and stuff like that created this feature film division. And their first big movie was called Quest for Camelot. Have you heard of this movie? I've only heard about it whilst researching The Iron Giant. I've not seen that movie. They put, it was like a movie written by a marketing department. It was so awful. And they put all their eggs in that basket. They were so proud of that thing. And, you know, I was I remember like I was actually in before between schools, I was actually taking a lot of classes to be able to be to just work on my portfolio to be to make it good enough to get into CalArts. And I remember I was working in one of those one of these programs and these guys, these executives came from Warner Brothers Feature Animation. They all had these jackets that had been made for Warner Brothers Feature Animation with the giant logo in the back. And they were like proudly talking about Quest for Camelot. And they were in the most transparent way. They're like, all right, so animated movies have to have a formula, right? So we're following the Disney formula. We got the musical numbers. You always have, I remember this guy said, you have to have the vanilla ice cream hero. He's really boring, but you got to have him. And they were so proud of the fact they're like, you need a wacky sidekick who's either got a New York accent or maybe a Cockney accent. So we got Don Rickles and Eric Idle as a two-headed dragon. Genius. And we were all like, this sounds awful. And they put so much money into that thing. And then it bombed. And they're like, oh, and then and then they looked at the Iron Giant and they did. How are we going to sell this? You know, they just couldn't figure it out. And they're just like and they treated the Iron Giant like it was the embarrassment that Quest for Camelot was. That's what infuriated us so much. Um, because it had bombed so much, they slashed Iron Giant's budget towards the very end. For those of us who are, who are, you know, like, what do we know? We're just a bunch of students and you, you've got your fancy Warner Brothers jackets and, you know, and, and we're, we're dying for you to hire us because we all want jobs. But this sounds terrible. And that's what was so amazing about Iron Giant. I mean, the fact that there are no musical numbers at that point, like everybody was so afraid to break the Disney formula, including Disney. I mean, it was set in, yeah, I mean, 1950s Cold War America. I mean, no, there are no animated movies. There's a nuclear missile in the movie. <laughs> like, I mean, this is like not to Disney in any way. And I think that they just didn't know how to deal with any material at that point that didn't fit the Disney formula, which is crazy because by 98, that formula had gotten tired. You know, I mean, it was like, or 99, my God, sorry, by 99, that formula had just really gotten kind of tired. You know, even like Tarzan, I think, came out that year, which was, you know, advertised like crazy. And, you know, there's a lot of really nice things about Tarzan. But but I mean, if anything, the, the, the problem is that they're just too afraid to break the mold, you know, that they had established 10 years earlier. Everything from the studio side seems to have not gone so well, but it, it sort of feels like the animation got to be kind of true to the original vision that Bradbird had. And, mm. and it's at least, you know, like we we get a film that hasn't you know, had a wacky sidekick dropped into it or something <laughs> at the last minute. At least we get this pure film, even though it didn't connect with audiences at the time. I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, apart from slashing the budget, the production feels like it was 
left alone enough for Brad Bird to just get on with it, um, albeit with you know probably not enough resource to uh, <laughs> to make it a comfortable ride. Yeah, he was an incredibly well respected guy. Um, it's funny it's his directorial debut, but he'd worked on. Um... I think Family Dog was the name of the Tim Burton uh, animated short um, that was very, very well respected. He worked in The Simpsons. So it's funny because, I mean, in the animation industry where, you know, your work is supposed to blend in with whatever people are doing, there were some people that were just so incredibly good that everybody knew who they were. And, and, and he was one of those people that everybody knew who he was. And it was kind of like, let's finally give Brad Bird his own film. So there were definitely enough people who knew enough to say like, this guy's a rising star. We've given him his film. So for him to get to that place to begin with, you know, so it was like, yes, we're giving him a lot of creative freedom. Uh, this guy's a genius. He's up and coming. But then at the same time, the studio itself, there are other people at the studio who didn't know what to do with it. One of the things I love about it, too, is uh, the, I mean, I love hand-drawn animation. And the thing I love about it, too, is that his his character designs look so unique to him and his style and they don't look Disney-esque. I love his like, first of all, the mouths <laughs> like I love his teeth. He has a very, this is so tiny, but he has a very unique way of drawing teeth that they all, everybody copying his style, emulating his style, who works on the team does. And I remember when the, when I saw The Incredibles, um, even though it's CG, I was like, I recognized Brad Bird teeth, you know, in those characters. I was like, those are so, Brad. I love how Brad Bird looking those drawings are, or those characters are, even though they're not drawings now, they're CG, but they still look just like the characters from Iron Giant, you know, and I, I love, I just love his style, his, his design, all those characters are so nicely designed. Also, you know, that one of my favorite things in animation is acting, um, you know, because they always say that I, mean, I did a whole episode about this called Actors with Pencils about how they just say, you know, an animator is just an actor with a pencil because they record the voices first, usually. Um, and then you kind of, you know, you listen to the vo vocal track and the line reading over and over and over again. And then you sort of you act it out in your, you know, in your cubicle. And, you know, animators often have mirrors because they'll like they'll mouth along with 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 what the people are saying and look at their mouths and like, what is my mouth doing? Or very often, you know, what they started doing around that time is they were videotaping the actors while they were performing and like looking like the, at their micro expressions. Like, what do they do with their eyes? What do they do with their like, what does their mouth look like when they're, you know, when they're making those sounds? And like, how can we put that into the drawings? That's why those characters often look like a combination between the original character design and the actor, you know, who did it, um, who performed it. But that's the thing I love was the acting. I was like, it's so good. Hogarth's acting is so fantastic. I just love those little moments, you know, the stuff he is with his hands. And I love when he's when he says to Dean, he's all, I'm hip. <laughs> you know, like his little movement with his hands. And like, it's just just the expressions, um, the acting on him is so good. Uh, and Kent as well. The act, his acting is tremendous. The the animation on on him as well. And the two of them, it's just. Um, I mean, they used to in the old days they would assign a single animator to animate a character all the way through, and I and and so that even that animator's style would would be present in that character. Um, but I think with Iron Giant, I don't think they did that. I think they actually had the whole team work on you know just be spread across different characters. But that was the thing that rewatching it, just the joy of, of, of a hand-drawn film that is always asking new ways to, 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 to illustrate and to draw. I'm Helen O'Hara, film journalist, author, and host of Women vs. Hollywood, a new podcast from the Stripped Media family. 
We're exploring the fall and rise of women in Hollywood from the silent era to the present day and into the future. Each episode, I'm joined by three or more special guests to discuss the challenges that women face in the film industry and look at what we can do to change the picture. We've got actors, directors, producers, writers, academics, film experts, you name it, they're all here to explain what's going on in Hollywood. Search for Women vs. Hollywood now, wherever you're listening to this, and come join us. We're in 1957. It's such a good idea to set the film when they do. You know, there's references in the film to Sputnik. Uh, it's on the cover of the, uh, it's on the front of the newspapers. They do such a good job of establishing where we're at and getting you into that, um, you know, pre-space travel mindset. Oh, and I love the sci-fi movie, the scary movie he's watching. That is hysterical. You know, how they were trying to copy the bad acting in those, like, in the moments of, like, excuse me, I think I've left my glasses <laughs> back in the lab, you know? And, oh, and the acting on Hogarth where he's eating the popcorn, I think it's popcorn, or, or Twinkies, and he's like, you're gonna get it. I love his facial expression when he does that. It's just so, ah, oh, it's so good. I think there's a, yeah, there's a scene where he's eating Twinkies and in, injecting cream into them. Yes, extra that's cream. right. That's right. <laughs> Which apparently is something Brad Bird used to do. That's a Brad Birdism. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, it's such a, you're right. It's such a lived in world. You know, I love, I absolutely feel like I, I, that town, I could, I, I, you know, I feel like I could drive to that town, you know, and, and it just, I, I just totally believe it. Um, and it's it's I read apparently too that they were super accurate in terms of the army uniforms, which felt that way too. I mean, they they did so much research into nineteen what everything would have looked like in nineteen fifty seven. Although interestingly, I noticed you know he Hogarth uses the expression "wig out, don't wig out," and I was like, that's got to be an anachronism. Wig out apparently was coined in nineteen fifty nine by beatniks. So unless Dean was the guy that coined the word two years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> the one beatnik in Maine who coined it <laughs> and taught it to Hogarth. <laughs> I think I think that was anachronism. They also bring in, I guess, concerns of the time. There's the sort of paranoid thriller sort of aspect uh, with Agent Mansley, with Kent Mansley, which is such a good name. Uh, it their, is. Uh, sort of government uh, agents. Um, I think from a made-up agency. I, I can't remember the name. No, I think he just keeps saying, I, I work for the government and all that implies. It works so well in a sci-fi film like this, especially a small town experiencing some sort of extraterrestrial goings on. Yeah, I love, I mean, as you probably know from my podcast, I've talked about this before, I've always had a fascination with the Cold War and Cold War stories. And I think one of the things I find so fascinating about the Cold War is that every, the whole world was a giant chess set. And so, you know, you have people at the very top, you know, who like literally have, you know, are moving their missiles around like chess pieces. But then everything gets played out on the very personal level, you know, where where people are going about their lives. And then these these forces come in and say, we need this. So, uh, you know, in our giant chessboard, we've decided we need to use move you here. And, and like people's lives get wildly disrupted. And it's kind of like, you know, nothing personal. It's just business, you know, kind of thing of the, of our of our giant st strategic Cold War going on. And I love those stories. I think those stories are fascinating. Um, Queen's Gambit, you know, on Netflix was a great example of that as well. And I and so I like the idea of this town that is going by its own set of values uh, as far as how they want to deal with all this. And then the government comes in and the army comes in and, you know, I'm sure this is probably a you know patriotic little American town. But then, of course, I think there's also there's there's that suspicion of the government is just such a also runs very deep in American culture for better or worse. And, um, you know, there's that I, that tension, I think, rewatching it 
um, I thought was super fascinating, you know, as far as like the, the what these forces represent as they come into this little town and how disruptive they are. And, you know, at the same time, there are, you know, th there are nuclear submarines off the coast, you know, of this town. And the Cold War is very real. I, I never get tired of that. I think rewatching it again, I just I, I really felt that in, in a very real way. Yeah, adds, adds sort of like a extra level of risk uh, and urgency. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Hogarth is, he's talking to a 50-foot tall iron alien, but the real risk is, you know, the government and the outsiders, you know, coming coming to the town there. You know, the, the villain is just a guy in a trench coat. It's not the aliens. It's nothing supernatural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that, that part, I think, is beautiful. The whole I am not a gun is just beautiful, too. Again, it's a... As you know, the history of guns in this country, I mean, I, it's just a nice, very nice message to have in an animated film. Something that comes up a lot looking at interviews is, is sort of Brad Bird's uh, approach to the film. And, and his question is, what if a gun had a soul but didn't want to be a gun? Yeah, and I think that's such a good way to to leap off into this film. Yeah, I read that this re the, uh, recently this weekend. I didn't know that. I guess his, I think his sister was the victim of gun violence. And apparently that is where he started thinking about that. What if a gun had a soul? The thing that, that struck me on, on this rewatch was how similar the story beats are to uh, Terminator 2, uh, John Connor's relationship with the, the Terminator machine. <laughs> really? How so? Just, uh, you know, that he, Hogarth throughout this film is teaching the Iron Giant to be more human and his movement changes oh. throughout the movie. And that's what we see John Connor doing with uh, the T-800 in, oh my in Terminator God, 2. Right. <laughs> Obviously, many, many, many other things are different. But I just, I love that idea of, you know, like a, 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 a child uh, teaching this sort of blank canvas uh, represented as a you know, sort of, it's a robot in both of these stories, um, but teaching something to become human and and getting that a child's so perspective on the world. And it sacrifices itself at the end too, with a kind of you know the the don't follow me, you know you don't follow, you stay, and then yeah, Terminator <laughs> going famously going into the molten whatever that was with, <laughs> with the, the thumbs, thumbs up. up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I will run for governor. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I think that you know, that, I mean that that relationship is the star of the the movie for me, and and not just like in sort of like scripted scenes, but just in like how the animation changes. Like I I love how when we first see the Iron Giant, it's very static, moving like a very typical machine. But towards the end, he's moving more and more like Hogarth, like very frantic, running around, moving like a human. And it's such a good way to just like show how their relationship has developed over the course of these 87 minutes. Yeah, I noticed that too this time around, that how robotic he is at the beginning and how, and yeah, I did read that, that they actually wanted the Iron Giant to start to, you know, mimic Hogarth because that's how he's learning how to be, you know, how how to move and how to how he becomes more human in his in in his movements and the very first scene is the most robotic that he is and that was very new too the fact that he was CG but they really worked hard to make it look like a pencil drawing you know I thought that was beautifully done as well yeah, I drink it I'm hip I don't know this is espresso you know it's like coffeezilla I said I'm hip. So she moved me up a grade because I wasn't fitting in. So now I'm even more not fitting in. I was getting good grades, you know, like always. So my mom says, you need stimulation. And I go, no, I'm stimulated enough right now. That's for sure. So she goes, uh-uh, you don't have a challenge. You need a challenge. So now I'm challenged, all right? I'm challenged to hold on to my lunch money because of all the big mooses who want to pound me because I'm a shrimpy dork who thinks he's smarter than them. But I don't think I'm smarter. I just do the stupid homework. If everyone else just did the stupid homework, they could move up a grade and get pounded too. Is there any more coffee? One of our teachers at CalArts who worked on Iron Giant, he used to talk a lot about how anime and especially the Studio Ghibli films, how much they created a sense of atmosphere and setting. 
as opposed to the problem with a lot of American animation at the time. I always feel like American, anim- I mean, again, I love the old Disney stuff, but in Warner Brothers, of course, is freaking genius. But uh, American animation, I feel like, descended to some extent through theater, through Broadway, through vaudeville. In the Japanese animation, a lot of it is kind of an expression of Japanese art a bit more, and that there's just so much more of a sense of atmosphere. You know, like Totoro, that scene in the rain, you know, where they're standing at the bus stop, you absolutely feel that you are in that rainstorm, you know, in a way that I feel like with a lot of American stuff, very often it feels like a backdrop. And that in Warner Brothers cartoons, it would like make that a joke, how much the background like literally felt was was maybe sometimes a backdrop or something like that. And uh this film, I, I I know, I mean, given that this is this was our teacher and he was one of the main animators on Iron Giant, you know, like they, they were very much thinking about this, you know, like w- like we, they really wanted to work hard to give a sense of atmosphere of what it felt, you know, moments of, of Hogarth just in the woods. You know, what does it feel like to be in that woods? You know, I think that's really nice, too. And the, the, the stuff on the sea as well, you really have that that the way that it's, it's animated is, is you know, you, you really feel that sense of, you know, being in the sea in the very beginning when the Iron Giant lands. It's such an impressive opening uh, and, and a great way to introduce that central one of the central characters there I um I, I whenever I'm watching this film I just can't help but look at how well drawn the, the giant is I love the design um I don't know like what, how do you think what, what do you think of of his design and and how he fits in with this world it's great it's great I mean it's um yeah, he's, you know, the thing I really like about it too is that you can see how he's put together. Um, there's just a, a nice simplicity to that design. And I feel like very often when people design robots, they make it unnecessarily complicated. And he's also does look to some extent like he comes to some extent like out of 1950s America. Like he looks like he really is made out of iron or steel. You know, like he's got bolts, which probably who knows where an alien would. But he really does. You know, he he does feel to some extent organic with that world, except for the moments, um, the giant ball of energy. Like, I like how sci fi that is. Um, you know, I, in fact, I think that when he be I think that's when he becomes, you know, the, the weapon. He is designed in more of a modern style, you know, and more of what may be like a late 90s style or futuristic style. And like I said, he's he's very simple in his design, you know, and it's very clear, you know, in animation, we used to always talk about it, your silhouette, you know, can you, does that silhouette read was a question people would always say and about his design, his silhouette reads beautifully. Like if I see this in pure silhouette, do I know what this is? He's got that sort of, uh, you know, like broad shoulders and, and, and you know, a big chest and, and you know, Superman is is a interesting factor in the film and, and it's, He's, you know, he's a bit of a Superman shape as well. You know, he's, he's built like a hero. He is. He is literally, I guess he's made of iron, but he is literally the Man of Steel. He is literally the Man of Steel, indeed. What do you make of the voice cast? This was probably the first time I'd ever heard Vin Diesel's very unique voice uh, watching this movie when I was younger. I did not even know that was Vin Diesel. Uh, it did not even occur to me at the time. Um, I, I, it's funny, apparently they worked really hard to cast that voice, which is interesting. Um, who knew that he had a, he had a, he had a knack of that? And I know that the animators, okay, so, do, okay, do you know that the old, you're asking me one question, I'm telling you something, something totally different, but I mean, um, uh, you know, the old uh, train conductors, Frank and Ollie, you know that those are, those are actually classic animators, um, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. Two of the, the famous nine old men. Yeah, the nine old men. So yeah, they animated them there. But I remember, so Frank and Ollie were, were talking about, I think it's in the, there's a documentary about them. They talked about even when they were doing Bambi, 
how it was so hard to find kids who sounded naturally like kids because these Hollywood kids are so trained and they sound so smart alecky and they they already are talking not like real people but like kids in movies or in this case probably kids in sitcoms. So I know it was very it's hard to find a kid you know who who really feels like they can act naturally in in Hollywood and uh, he's great. The kid who does Hogarth is great. And then um, the guy who plays Ken Christopher McDonald is that his name? He's a character actor. He does so much stuff. He's so, his IMDb is pretty, pretty vast. Jennifer Aniston, I never would have thought, certainly not in 1998, you know, to play a mom, and she's perfect. And I know that Brad Bird fought very hard for Harry Connick Jr. and that the studio had other people they had in mind, but he just knew from the beginning that that, that was going to be the voice of Dean. And I know he had to fight for that. They're not just casting these names because they can put their you know name above the the title of the film. It just feels like these are right for the, the roles. And you can't really imagine anyone anyone in their place yeah which is probably another reason why the studio didn't know what to do with it (laughs) (laughs) they're like you're killing us here we wanted (laughs) sylvester stallone for the giant and we wanted whoever they wanted for dean (laughs) vin diesel was so like early in his career as well that's the sort of the the really crazy uh casting like his he didn't really have much uh have many credits at all it's it's kind of a weird i don't know like i'd love to have been in the room when vin diesel's name came up and what the conversation was yeah i mean that's also too i mean the old days uh you know they didn't have celebrities do voices a lot in the old days and so i was in the industry when it started to become a thing to always have celebrities and and i know a lot of people were annoyed by that because they would they would always they felt like if the celebrity is perfect with a role great but like if not there's so many amazing voice actors out there that could you know could nail this role um and it was frustrating for them when they were told like nope must be a name and that's I know it's it's been it's still probably, I think probably frustrating for a lot of them. It's kind of nice that this film is able to you know maybe it's also budgetary reasons, but it's able to sort of stay out of that. They don't need to go for the stars. We're going to cast great voice actors, people who really work uh, for these roles, and you know it benefits us now when we're re- revisiting this movie. And that's the great thing too is I felt like the people who were uh, like in Pixar, they always said you know whenever we do any choice that we make in this film, we think will this play twenty years from now? You know. Will this will the, you know we're we're trying to make classics and um, you know I remember when Shrek came out uh, people were like this is fantastic a lot of people loved how how fresh and timely um, you know Shrek felt at the time and I remember those of us who came from that school of animation were saying like how is that ma-, you know well I guess the Matrix is still popular but at the time we were saying like how is that Matrix reference going to play twenty years from now you know there's just too many pop culture jokes that are really funny in the moment that like. 50 years from now, who's going to know what these things are? Um, you know, as opposed to Monsters, Inc., which I think came out the same year, there was a sense of like, you know, that we're making this movie for the, for the ages. And again, I haven't rewatched Shrek, so I have no idea. Maybe that stuff plays great. I mean, they do have an incredible voice talent in that film. So, you know, Eddie Murphy will always be hilarious. <laughs> so, um, but those kinds of things, those kinds of like, yeah, of the moment, you know, I I, I like when, the, when, when they're thinking like Iron Giant, they were thinking, you know, a hundred years from now, are people going to be able to watch this film and enjoy it? I'm so glad we've got this in our festival, joining our sort of animation wing. Uh, now we've got quite a good, <laughs> a uh, large good lineup <laughs> of animated movies. With The Iron Giant, a lot of people still haven't seen it. A lot of my good friends haven't seen this movie. So hmm. I think by having this in our festival, we'll hopefully get to screen it to a, to a new audience. Part of the, the job at our fictional film festival is, as well as picking a movie uh, and talking about why you'd like to, to show it to an audience, is you have to pick the movie theatre uh, that you would like to screen this film in. 
Um, is there somewhere you know that's sort of special to you or, or close to you that you'd love to present the Iron Giant? In New York, where I live, there's uh, so many wonderful outdoor events that happen in the summer. And one of my favorite places to watch a film is in um, Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is by the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. They'll blow up a gigantic screen, uh, an inf- giant inflatable screen, and have an outdoor screening with food trucks. And you've got the Manhattan skyline behind you. And, you know, in a gorgeous night, it is it is just like to watch a film in that setting is is absolutely beautiful. And I remember I watched the last time I saw a movie there, they're what they're playing Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. And which I saw as a kid. But I think what was funny about this was that I noticed there were a lot of people that were much younger than me. And it was interesting to see people who didn't grow up with Indiana Jones experiencing it for the first time. I think what you could tell what they enjoyed about it was was that the movie was was very knowing of how silly it was Um, and, you know, was very self-aware in a way that I could tell the audience was delighted by. And I would love to watch The Iron Giant in that setting with a lot of people who never saw it and were enjoying it for the first time. And maybe they were too young to have ever, you know, maybe they weren't born in 1999 and, and to feel that sense of discovery on a beautiful night, you know, and that giant inflated screen with some, you know. Some great food trucks uh, and the Manhattan skyline and the sun setting behind it would be would be phenomenal. Oh, wow. That sounds that sounds ideal. Uh, <laughs> and then having the skyline behind you as well, like, you know, experiencing that sense of scale um, yeah, with the giant on screen, that would be that'd be kind of fun. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. When you go to the cinema, have you got a, a favorite snack if you if you had to sort of you know curate a menu for the screening? Oh, I mean, I'm a sucker for popcorn still, but I love um I particularly love like at some of the more art house films, they they make sure that their popcorn is cooked in canola oil because it's healthiest. But I think canola oil also tastes the best. So whenever I'm in a theater and I know they don't do the big, gross, industrial, you know, popcorn and it's like, you know, popped in canola oil. That's always my favorite. No, that's not come up before. I need to uh, need to do some popcorn research. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very high maintenance about my popcorn. <laughs> Uh, and if you if you could invite a special guest to maybe introduce the film or sort of you know join the audience for a Q and A afterwards, um, who would you who would you like to to invite down to Brooklyn? Oh yeah, I mean I think it would be one of our animation teachers who worked on the film. There's a one guy named Mike Wing who is an incredible. He was he was the guru of our animation teachers at the time, and um, he just uh, he just had a very calm way of you know he was very you know a way of expressing sort of. And very philosophical about animation. And he had a particular style that was very, he was very into what they call the squash and stretch, you know, in animation that you can really squash and stretch things within those 24 drawings per second because it it flies by so quickly you feel it. And, you know, if you if you cut by frame by frame, but he would push that further than a lot of people, but not in a cartoony way, just to capture emotion. And there was even one shot of the Iron Giant where um, not the Iron Giant, but of, I think it was of Hogarth, where he like he throws his his hand out. And I noticed that it, it, it stretched in a particularly stretchy way. And I was like, I bet Mike Wing animated that shot. He was such a philosophical animator. I think that he would be he, he would be I think people would, would just love hearing from somebody like that. 
you know, to, to, who, who really thinks deeply about, about, about the art of hand-drawn animation. I think it'll be a really unique uh, perspective and, uh, and, and hugely insightful because I think, you know, when films like The Iron Giant are promoted, you know, the, the actors do a lot of press and the director, but we don't actually get to hear from the animators. I want to, I want to hear from the, you know, those people who worked around the clock, uh, yeah. doing, putting all the, you know, the hard graft in. Um, so yeah, that would be an amazing guest. Wow. Yeah. Those are the stars for us, man. <laughs> you know, those animators. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm well up for a, an outdoor screening of The Iron Giant in Brooklyn. I think that would be an incredible event. Um, yeah. I've never seen this film at the cinema, so I've, I'm you know, I'm looking constantly at um, when cinemas are doing rep uh, programming or putting on some classics if they'll, if they'll schedule The Iron Giant. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it was pretty sad to watch it at a, at a multiplex at Burbank in 99 with like three people in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and Wild Wild West had been having packed screens next door, probably. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, thank you so much eric for for picking the iron giant and for, for joining us to talk about the movie it's been it's been hugely insightful as well you know you know, knowing that you were there um, working working alongside people who were actually working on the film when you were at, at college this film is a special place in my heart so yeah always happy to talk about it where can people uh, find out what you're up to with imaginary worlds and and you know just uh, just yourself online on social media yeah i mean well the imaginary worlds site is imaginaryworldspodcast.org and there's that that's sort of the portal where you can learn all about the show and me, and I've got links to my social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So that's sort of the best way to kind of like, if you want to know anything about anything I'm working on or anything like that, I think it's, I, I've turned that site into kind of my personal portal <laughs> to some extent. Um, uh, and where to subscribe and it's all it's all there in the site so yeah it's imagineworldspodcast.org thank you so much eric it's been great to have you on the show yeah thanks for having me on thank you for listening please subscribe on apple podcasts or your podcatcher of choice you can also listen on our website 90minfilmfest.com that's 90minfilmfest.com you can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.